Chapter Twenty Two of She and Alan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. She and Alan by H. Rider Haggard. Chapter Twenty Two. Asha's farewell. Thus I spoke, whose nerves were on edge after all I had seen, or, as even then, I suspected seemed to see. For how could I believe that these visions of mine had any higher origin than Asha's rather malicious imagination? Already I had formed my theory. It was that she must be a hypnotist of power, who, after she had put a spell upon her subject, could project into his mind such fancies as she chose together with a selection of her own theories. Only two points remained obscure. The first was, how did she get the necessary information about the private affairs of a humble individual like myself? For these were not known even to Sikali, with whom she seemed to be in some kind of correspondence, or to Hans, at any rate in such completeness. I could but presume that in some mysterious way she drew them from, or rather excited them in my own mind and memory, so that I seemed to see those with whom once I had been intimate, with modifications and in surroundings that her intelligence had carefully prepared. It would not be difficult for a mind like hers, familiar, as I gathered it was, with the ancient lore of the Greeks and the Egyptians, to create a kind of Hades, and, by way of difference, to change it from one of shadow to one of intense illumination, and into it to plunge the consciousness of him upon whom she had laid her charm of sleep. I had seen nothing and heard nothing that she might not thus have moulded, always given that she had access to the needful clay of facts which I alone could furnish. Granting this hypothesis, the second point was, what might be the object of her elaborate and most bitter jest? Well, I thought that I could guess. First she wished to show her power or rather to make me believe that she had power of a very unusual sort. Secondly, she owed Umslopogas and myself a debt for our services in the war with Rezu, which we had been told would be repaid in this way. Thirdly, I had offended her in some fashion, and she took her opportunity of settling the score. Also, there was a fourth possibility— that really she considered herself a moral instructress, and desired, as she said, to teach me a lesson by showing how futile were human hopes and vanities in respect to the departed and their affections. Now, I do not pretend that all this analysis of Asha's motives occurred to me at the moment of my interview with her. Indeed, I only completed it later, after much careful thought, when I found it sound and good. At that time, although I had inklings, 
I was too bewildered to form a just judgment. Further, I was too angry, and it was from this bow of my anger that I loosed a shaft at a venture as to some lesson which awaited her. Perhaps certain words spoken by the dying Rezu had shaped that shaft, or perhaps some shadow of her advancing fate fell upon me. The success of the shot, however, was remarkable. Evidently it pierced the joints of her harness, and indeed went home to Asha's heart. She turned pale. All the peach-blossom hues faded from her lovely face. Her great eyes seemed to lessen and grow dull, and her cheeks to fall in. Indeed, for a moment she looked old, very old quite an aged woman. Moreover, she wept, for I saw two big tears drop upon her white raiment, and I was horrified. "'What has happened to you?' I said, or rather gasped. "'Not,' she answered, "'save that thou hast hurt me sore. Dost thou not know, Alan?' that it is cruel to prophesy ill to any, since such words feathered from fate's own wing and barbed with venom fester in the breast and mayhap bring about their own accomplishment. Most cruel of all is it when with them are repaid friendship and gentleness. I reflected to myself, yes, friendship of the order that is called candid, and gentleness such as is hid in a cat's velvet paw, but contented myself with asking how it was that she who said she was so powerful came to fear anything at all. Because, as I have told thee, Alan, there is no armour that can turn the spear of destiny, which, when I heard those words of thine, it seemed to me, I know not why, was directed by thy hand. Look now on Rezu, who thought himself unconquerable, and yet was slain by the black axe-bearer, and whose bones to-night stay the famine of the jackals. Moreover, I am accursed who sought to steal its servant from heaven to be my love, and how know I when and where vengeance will fall at last? Indeed, it has fallen already on me, who, through the long ages, amid savages must mourn widowed and alone, but not all of it, oh, I think not all. Then she began to weep in good earnest, and watching her, for the first time I understood that this glorious creature, who seemed to be so powerful, was after all one of the most miserable of women, and as much a prey to loneliness, every sort of passion, and apprehensive fear, as can be any common mortal. If, as she said, she had found the secret of life, which of course I did not believe, at least it was obvious that she had lost that of happiness. She sobbed softly and wept, and while she did so, the loveliness which had left her for a little while returned to her like light to a grey and darkened sky. Oh, 
How beautiful she seemed with the abundant locks in disorder over her tear-stained face. How beautiful beyond imagining. My heart melted as I studied her. I could think of nothing else except her surpassing charm and glory. I pray you do not weep, I said. It hurts me, and indeed I am sorry if I said anything to give you pain. But she only shook that glorious hair further about her face, and behind its veil wept on. You know, Asha, I continued, you have said many hard things to me, making me the target of your bitter wit. Therefore it is not strange that at last I answered you. And hast thou not deserved them, Alan? She murmured in soft and broken tones from behind that veil of scented locks. Why? I asked. Because from the beginning thou didst defy me, showing in thine every accent that thou heldest me a liar, and one of no account in body or in spirit, one not worthy of thy kind look or of those gentle words which once were my portion among men. Oh, thou hast dealt hardly with me, and therefore perchance I know not. I paid thee back with such poor weapons as a woman holds, though all the while I liked thee well. Then again she fell to sobbing, swaying herself gently to and fro in her sweet sorrow. It was too much. Not knowing what else to do to comfort her, I patted her ivory hand, which lay upon the couch beside me. And as this appeared to have no effect, I kissed it, which she did not seem to resent. Then suddenly I remembered and let it fall. She tossed back her hair from her face, and fixing her big eyes on me, said gently enough, looking down at her hand, What ails thee, Alan? Oh, nothing, I answered. Only I remembered the story you told me about some man called Callicrates. She frowned. And what of Callicrates, Alan? Is it not enough that for my sins, with tears, empty longings, and repentance, I must wait for him through all the weary centuries? Must I also wear the change of this Callicrates, to whom I owe many a debt when he is far away? Say, didst thou see him in that heaven of thine, Alan? for there perchance he dwells. I shook my head and tried to think the thing out, while all the time those wonderful eyes of hers seemed to draw the soul from me. It seemed to me that she bent forward and held up her face to me. Then I lost my reason and also bent forward. Yes, she made me mad, and save her I forgot all. Swiftly she placed her hand upon my heart, saying, Stay, what meanest thou? Dost love me, Alan? I think so. That is, yes, I answered. 
She sank back upon the couch away from me and began to laugh very softly. What words are these, she said, that they pass thy lips so easily and so unmeant, perchance from long practice? Oh, Alan, I am astonished. Art thou the same man who some few days ago told me, and this unasked, that as soon wouldst thou think of courting the moon as of courting me? Art thou he who not a minute gone swore proudly that never had his heart and his lips wandered from certain angels whither they should not? And now, and now, I coloured to my eyes and rose, muttering, Let me be gone. Nay, Alan, why? I see no mark here. And she held up her hand, scanning it carefully. Thou art too much what thou wert before, except perhaps in thy soul, which is invisible, she added with a touch of malice, nor am I angry with thee. Indeed, hadst thou not tried to charm away my woe, I should have thought but poorly of thee as a man. There, let it rest and be forgotten, or remembered as thou wilt. Still, in answer to thy words concerning my Callicratus, what of those adored ones that, according to thy tale, but now thou didst find again in a place of light. Because they seemed faithless, shouldst thou be faithless also? Shame on thee, thou fickle Alan. She paused, waiting for me to speak. Well, I could not. I had nothing to say, who was utterly disgraced and overwhelmed. Thou thinkst, Alan, she went on, that I have cast my net about thee, and this is true. Learn wisdom from it, Alan, and never again defy a woman, that is, if she be fair, for then she is stronger than thou art, since nature for its own purpose made her so. Whatever I have done by tears, that ancient artifice of my sex, as in other ways, is for thy instruction, Alan, that thou mayst benefit thereby. Again I sprang up, uttering an English exclamation, which I trust Asha did not understand, and again she motioned to me to be seated, saying, Nay, leave me not yet, since... Even if the light fancy of a man that comes and goes like the evening wind and for a breath made my dear to thee has passed away, there remains certain work which we must do together, although thinking to thyself alone thou hast forgotten it, having been paid thine own fee. One is yet due to that old wizard in a far land who sent thee to visit Kor and me as indeed he has reminded me, and within an hour. This amazing statement aroused me from my personal and painful preoccupation, and caused me to stare at her blankly. 
Again thou disbelievest me, she said with a little stamp. Do so once more, Alan, and I swear I'll bring thee to grovel on the ground and kiss my foot and babble nonsense to a woman sworn to another man, such as never for all thy days thou shalt think of without a blush of shame. Oh, no, I broke in hurriedly. I assure you that you are mistaken. I believe every word you have said, or say, or will say, I do in truth. Now thou liest. Well, what is one more falsehood among so many? Let it pass. What indeed? I echoed in eager affirmation. And as for Sikali's message, and I paused. It was to recall to my mind that he desired to learn whether a certain great enterprise of his will succeed, the details of which he says thou canst tell me. Repeat them to me. So, glad enough to get away from more dangerous topics, I narrated to her as briefly and clearly as I could the history of the old witch-doctor's feud with the royal house of Zululand. She listened taking in every word, and said, So now he yearns to know whether he will conquer or be conquered, and that is why he sent or thinks that he sent thee on this journey. Not for thy sake, Alan, but for his own. I cannot tell thee, for what have I to do with the finish of this petty business, which to him seems so large? Still, as I owe him a debt for luring the axe-bearer here to rid me of mine enemy, and thee to lighten my solitude for an hour by the burnishing of thy mind, I will try. Set that bowl before me, Alan. And she pointed to a marble tree-pod, on which stood a basin half full of water. And come, sit close by me and look into it, telling me what thou seest. I obeyed her instructions, and presently found myself with my head over the basin, staring into the water in the exact attitude of a person who is about to be shampooed. This seems rather foolish, I said abjectly, for at that moment I resembled the Queen of Sheba in one particular, if in no other, namely that there was no more spirit in me what am i supposed to do i see nothing at all look again she said and as she spoke the water grew clouded then on it appeared a picture i saw the interior of a kaffir hut dimly lighted by a single candle set in the neck of a bottle to the left of the door of the hut was a bedstead and on it lay stretched a wasted and dying man, in whom, to my astonishment, I recognized Setivayo, king of the Zulus. At the foot of the bed stood another man, myself grown older by many years, and leaning over the bed, apparently whispering into the dying man's ear, was a grotesque and malevolent figure which I knew to be that of Sikali opener of roads, whose glowing eyes were fixed upon the terrified and tortured face of Setivayo. 
All was as it happened afterwards, as I have written down in the book called Finished. I described what I saw to Asha, and while I was doing so the picture vanished away, so that nothing remained save the clear water in the marble bowl. The story did not seem to interest her. Indeed, she leaned back and yawned a little. Thy vision is good, Alan, she said indifferently, and wide also, since thou canst see what passes in the sun or distant stars and pictures of things to be in the water, to say nothing of other pictures in a woman's eyes, all within an hour. Well, this savage business concerns me not, and of it I want to know no more. Yet it would appear that here the old wizard, who is thy friend, has the answer that he desires. For there in the picture the king he hates lies dying, while he hisses in his ear, and thou dost watch the end. What more can he seek? Tell him it when ye meet, and tell him also it is my will that in future he should trouble me less, since I love not to be wakened from my sleep to listen to his half-instructed talk and savage vaporings. Indeed, he presumes too much. And now enough of him and his dark plots. Ye have your desires, all of you, and are paid in full. Overpaid, perhaps, I said with a sigh. Ah, Alan, I think that lesson thou hast learned pleases thee but little. Well, be comforted, for the thing is common. Hast never heard that there is but one morsel more bitter to the taste than desire denied, namely, desire fulfilled. Believe me that there can be no happiness for man until he attains a land where all desire is dead. That is what the Buddha preaches, Asha. Aye, I remember the doctrines of that wise man well, who without doubt had found a key to the gate of truth, one key only, for, mark thou, Alan, there are many. Man being man must know desires, since without them, robbed of ambitions, strivings, hopes, fears, I, and of life itself, the race must die, which is not the will of the Lord of life, who needs a nursery for his servants' souls, wherein his swords of good and ill shall shape them to his pattern. So it comes about, Alan, that what we think the worst is oft best for us, and with that knowledge, if we are wise, let us assuage our bitterness and wipe away our tears. I have often thought that, I said. I doubt it not, Alan since though it has pleased me to make a jest of thee, I know that thou hast thy share of wisdom, such little share as thou canst gather in thy few short years. I know, too, that thy heart is good and aspires high. And, friend, 
Well, I find in thee a friend indeed, as I think not for the first time, nor certainly for the last. Mark, Alan, what I say, not a lover, but a friend, which is higher far. For when passion dies with the passing of the flesh, if there be no friendship, what will remain save certain memories that, mayhap, are well forgot? Eh, how would those lovers meet elsewhere who were never more than lovers? With weariness, I hold, as they stared into each other's empty soul, or even with disgust. Therefore, the wise will seek to turn those with whom fate mates them into friends, since otherwise soon they will be lost for a more. If they are wiser still, having made them friends, they will suffer them to find lovers where they will. Good maxims, are they not? Yet hard to follow, or so, perchance, thou thinkst them, as I do. She grew silent and brooded a while, resting her chin upon her hand and staring down the hall. Thus the aspect of her face was different from many that I had seen it wear. No longer had it the allure of Aphrodite or the majesty of Hera. Rather might it have been that of Athene herself. So wise it seemed, so calm, so full of experience and of foresight, that almost it frightened me. What was this woman's true story, I wondered, what her real self, and what the sum of her gathered knowledge? Perhaps it was accident, or perhaps again she guessed my mind. At any rate her next words seemed in some sense an answer to these speculations. Lifting her eyes she contemplated me a while, then said, My friend! We part to meet no more in thy life's day. Often thou wilt wonder concerning me as to what in truth I am, and mayhap in the end thy judgment will be to write me down some false and beauteous wanderer who, rejected of the world or driven from it by her crimes, made choice to rule among savages playing the part of oracle to that little audience, and telling strange tales to such few travellers as come her way. Perhaps, indeed, I do play this part among many others, and if so, thou wilt not judge me wrongly. Alan, in the old days, mariners who had sailed the northern seas told me that there in amidst mist and storm float mountains of ice, shed from dizzy cliffs, which are hid in darkness where no sun shines. They told me also that whereas above the ocean's breast appears, but a blue and dazzling point, sunk beneath it is oft a whole frozen isle, invisible to man. Such am I, Alan. Of my being thou seest but one little peak, glittering in light, or crowned with storm, as heaven's moods sweep over it. 
but in the depths beneath are hid its white and broad foundations, hollowed by the seas of time to caverns and to palaces which my spirit doth inhabit. So picture me, therefore, as wise and fair, but with a soul unknown, and pray that in time to come thou mayst see it in its splendour. Hadst thou been other than thou art, I might have shown thee secrets, making clear to thee the parable of much that I have told thee in metaphor and varying fable. Ay, and given thee great gifts of power and enduring days, of which thou knowest nothing. But of those who visit shrines, O Alan, two things are required, worship and faith, since without these the oracles are dumb, and the healing waters will not flow. Now I, Asha, am a shrine, yet to me thou broughtest no worship until I won it by a woman's trick and in me thou hast no faith. Therefore for thee the oracle will not speak, and the waters of deliverance will not flow. Yet I blame thee not, who art as thou wast made, and the hard world has shaped thee. And so we part. Think not I am far from thee, because thou seest me not in the days to come since like that Isis, whose majesty alone I still exercise on earth, I, whom men name Asha, am in all things. I tell thee that I am not one, but many, and being many, am both here and everywhere. When thou standest beneath the sky at night, and lookest on the stars, remember that in them mine eyes behold thee. When the soft winds of evening blow, that my breath is on thy brow, and when the thunder rolls, that there am I, riding on the lightnings and rushing with the gale. Do you mean that you are the goddess Isis? I asked, bewildered. Because if so, why did you tell me that you were but her priestess? Have it as thou wilt, Alan. All sounds do not reach thine ears. All sights are not open to thy eyes. And therefore thou art half deaf and blind. Perchance now that her shrines are dust and her worship is forgot, some spark of the spirit of that immortal lady whose chariot was the moon lingers on the earth in this woman's shape of mine. Though her essence dwells afar, and perchance her other name is nature, my mother and thine, O Alan. At the least hath not the world a soul, and of that soul am I not mayhap a part, ay, and thou also. For the rest are not the priest and the divine he bows to of the same. It was on my lips to answer yes, if the priest is a knave or a self-deceiver, but I did not. 
Farewell, Alan, and let Asha's benison go with thee. Safe shalt thou reach thy home, for all is prepared to take thee hence, and thy companions with thee. Safe shalt thou live for many a year, till thy time comes, and then, perchance, thou wilt find those whom thou hast lost more kind than they seem to be to-night. She paused a while, then added, Hearken unto my last word. As I have said, much that I have told thee may bear a double meaning, as is the way of parables, to be interpreted as thou wilt. Yet one thing is true. I love a certain man, in the old days named Callicrates, to whom alone I am appointed by a divine decree, and I await him here. Oh, shouldst thou find him in the world without, tell him that Asha awaits him, and grows weary in the waiting. Nay, thou wilt never find him, since even if he be born again, by what token would he be known to thee? Therefore I charge thee, keep my secrets well, lest Asha's curse should fall on thee. While thou livest, tell not of me to the world thou knowest. Dost thou swear to keep my secrets, Alan? I swear, Asha. I thank thee, Alan, she answered, and grew silent for a while. At length Asha rose, and drawing herself up to the full of her height, stood there majestic. Next she beckoned to me to come near, for I too had risen and left the days. I obeyed, and bending down she held her hands over me as though in blessing, then pointed towards the curtains, which at this moment were drawn asunder, by whom I do not know. I went, and when I reached them, turned to look my last on her. There she stood, as I had left her. But now her eyes were fixed upon the ground, and her face once more was brooding absently, as though no such a man as I had ever been. It came into my mind that already she had forgotten me, the plaything of an hour who had served her turn and been cast aside. End of chapter 22 of She and Alan by H. Ryder Haggard Read by Lars Rolander